Welcome to Black Boys and Men, Changing the Narrative, a podcast series sponsored by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the NYU Silver School of Social Work and the Community Technical Assistance Center of New York. I'm your host, Jason Jones. This series brings together thought leaders, community members, and individuals with lived experience to discuss and dispel the myths and stereotypes surrounding black boys and men, while providing facts and best practices for those working with these often marginalized populations. Today's podcast discusses the importance of analyzing, understanding, and addressing the historical trauma in the lives of black boys and men. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart describes historical trauma as a constellation of characteristics associated with massive cumulative group trauma across generations. These forms of trauma include destruction of cultural practices, slavery, forced relocation, and genocide, among others, and can deeply impact individuals, families, and entire communities. We're joined by Samuel Simmons, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor and the organizer of the Community Empowerment Through Black Men Healing Conference, with 25 years of experience in the field of historical trauma. Sam, we're pleased to have you. Let's get started by having you tell us a little bit more about you and the work that you do. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to be part of this conversation. I don't, it's always, it's always hard talking about, uh, yourself, that's for sure. But I am a licensed chemical dependency counselor and a behavioral consultant. And I've been uh, doing this work for over 27 years now. I have a background in um, chronic pain, did that for 20 years at uh, one of our local hospitals until they closed uh, the pain clinic. My current work is really about community trauma, specifically the African-American community trauma, which started with actually focusing on African-American men. What brought that about was once uh, I stopped working at the hospital in the early 2000s, I was doing some work in the community, doing a few domestic violence groups with African-American men and doing some chemical dependency work in terms of groups in the community, but I, I I wasn't really in the community doing work. There was a project that was started early in the 2000s here called uh, the uh, African-American Men's Project. And that project was a result at the time when one of our city councilmen, I believe, asked the questions of one of our community leaders, why was it that you had in his in his eyes all these men on the corner when other folks were working, what was going on and and what did uh, this particular person think was the issue? Out of that question, they came up with this, as I mentioned, the American Men's Project, where they called upon community leaders and folks working in the community. They They sent me a letter asking me to be part of it, of the commission. And the initial letter, actually, I didn't even respond to the first letter. Uh, they sent the second letter. I didn't respond to that one either. And one of the, uh, uh, and, and so they sent me a third letter and told me to show up at a certain time, a certain place. So I showed up since they sent me three letters. 
And it was like, I think, 146 of us African-American men who had been doing work in the community. Several of them were considered community leaders. And, you know, historically for me, I had worked with several individuals in the community who had the title of community leader, and it didn't work out so well in terms of what I was seeing. I think that might have been why uh, I might initially had uh, not respond to the first letters. So I really started getting into what was being done, and it looked like a, a great project. On it, it was a great project on paper. And the more I was in the community, the more I really started paying attention to the history of the community here in Minneapolis, the black community. The question for me was, how do you spend 20, and I may be conservative on numbers, but 20, 30, $40 million a year over several years of nonprofit money and not have things change substantially? And, you know, you we usually have the same answers, you know, the issue of systematic racism and those kind of pieces, and, and all of those pieces count. You know, and then people outside the community say, well, you know, those folks in that community, they don't care, they're not working hard enough, all of that kind of external stuff. But what I was seeing is there was folks in the community who cared a great deal. There were folks in the community doing a great deal of, of good work. The one thing nobody was talking about at the time, nobody was talking about male trauma. They when they would talk about males, especially black males, they talk about being them being accountable, missing from their children's lives, all these negative connotations. So my question was, okay, so if you got a community that's traumatized and you got and you don't recognize male trauma, which is true in across the country, we don't recognize male trauma no matter what nationality ethnic group we're talking about. But when you talk about black male trauma, it's ignored even more in and outside the community. And so that's when I started going on my journey to identify trauma and, and identify different types of trauma and how that might look like not just for black men, but for the black community and, and looking at if we address that trauma, how would that improve what was going on in the community? When I talk about historical trauma, I break it up into what I see as major issues, major blows that the black community have experienced since slavery. You have the 200 and some odd years of slavery. The people say you're free, okay? It's one thing dealing with slavery. Then they say you're free, and then they treat you everything but free. Think of the psychological effect of that. And so you have these different blows, you know, Jim Crow and, you know, that 13th Amendment. And then you have civil rights movement. And then after civil rights movement, we have, you know, some of our people talk about a welfare era or, well, actually the Great Migration comes before that. And then you got all these individuals, African-American individuals who might not have been able to read as well, but they had skills that were transferred well into factories. And then the factories started closing in 1975. And so when you close the factories that employed individuals who barely pass, get through high school, where do you employ them at? And so you have the factories closed and then you drop the cocaine in the neighborhood. And then voila, now we can fill up more jails because in terms of black males, in my view, black males' bodies haven't been worth much to America since slavery, unless they're locking us up. 
And so you get to 1975, towards the end of that, the 80s, three strikes. So you bring, you get all the OGs off the street. The babies are left. 85, crack really get hold. And, and, and now it's in the Midwest. And crack cocaine was so devastating because it affected black women. And when it affected black women, who were the keepers of the community and have historically been the keepers of the community, because black men, in, in some cases, not to their fault or whatever, were in and out of the community, even if it was to get a job, to work two or three jobs or whatever, they were doing their piece. The, the, the black women in the community were the keepers of the kids. And so now you get around that late 80s and 90s, you got all these kids fending for themselves. Now they out slinging because the OGs are gone and they got to feed their families. And then when the young folks I'm dealing with, you know, our average age in our prison system in Minnesota is 35. And so they were raised in trauma. That's why they ain't trying to listen to this noise that us old folks be trying to say. Because when you're raised in trauma, sometimes it's hard to, to, to differentiate which trauma and what's not. And then also it makes it difficult to manage my emotions and, and to tolerate stuff that my generation was taught to tolerate to, to take care of our families. And so we're in the third generation of that. And so during that period, the, the, high, the high point, the negative point of, uh, of crack cocaine, all the folks who could move out the neighborhood did. You leave the poor, you got the crack cocaine, you ain't got no jobs. And then you have a high concentration of police. And so now you have what I call currently the institutionalized generation that was raised by systems. You really lay the foundation for how all of these things are connected, especially the systems that black boys and men are made to traverse today. I think that, you know, stemming from slavery to the 13th Amendment to the criminalization of black bodies, especially black men, to the Jim Crow era, civil rights, even with increased drugs within communities, as well as now with Black Lives Matter, you have periods of give and take where communities are told one thing in terms of their freedoms and civil liberties and how they can function in society, but their experience is completely different. And I think that within that, you know, we come to 2017 where there are many folks that despite that history and despite that understanding are countering that with it's 2017 it's time to move on slavery has been over and i i would love to get your opinion on what do you say to those individuals despite having this history well i have this graphic that i show where it talks uh, it brings up the idea that we have let me see i think what 247 years of slavery 100 years of jim crow and the last 52 years of freedom out of the 397 years i use a lot of pictures in my presentation and and the people who now especially when i do my presentation it's done in such a clear way that they might have that opinion when they start but less of them have that opinion when it ends because it's so clear the connection to what we see right now, right? In terms of you know the, the battles that we're currently fighting within our community. If we're not addressing trauma simultaneously with all the other things we've been doing in our community, we are running in place. Because the thing is, is like right now, we are at a state where we say we want jobs, we need jobs in our community for our young folks. 
And when I talk about the institutionalized generation, some of our folks have learned so well how to live with less that living with more with some responsibility is difficult for them to comprehend. You know, we really are grasping an understanding of why it's important to talk about historical trauma, not only at the individual level for black men, but also at the community level and how that impacts everyone within their lives. What I'm wondering is how do you start that conversation? So for folks that are working particularly within these communities every day, and they understand that it's important to really talk about, they see the connection between the history as well as the present day circumstances. How do you start that conversation about historical trauma? One of the ways you can start the conversation is getting them to talk about their own current family history and working backwards. The other, the, see, the other thing that comes up when you ask that question, especially if you're talking about, after you, you, so you got the issue of African-American practitioners and you got the experience of non-African-American practitioners. And there's two different kind of stuff that kind of goes on. Sometimes it can go either way, but two different kind of stuff going on. When we're talking about non-African-American practitioners, they can be so sympathetic that they're enabling individuals, especially with this younger generation who've learned to live with less, they just manipulate those poor folks. And then the poor folks get mad when they find out they be manipulated, then they want to punish everybody. They can do that to uh, black therapists as well. But either you're over sympathetic or you hardcore all or nothing uh, accountability when dealing with our folks. And we use a lot of old information to deal with our community and to deal with black individuals. We're just starting to get some good information on how to do therapy with our folks. And the folks who do the, the best writing or conversation about that therapy have a fairly decent handle on this concept of historical trauma, community trauma, or what we might even call collective trauma. But when we're talking about African-American therapists, the problem is, is we're so close to the trauma and we've been hiding our trauma behind taking care of other folks. And so we get wore out, what we call with that parallel trauma especially when we work for organizations that don't get it. So the parallel trauma is you're experiencing the same trauma as your client. And you're not doing a good job with your own, but you can hide behind your client or hide behind the fact that you got a big heart. Because one of the things is that I realize in terms of our survival as black people is we believe that the collective is more important than the individual. Because we have, as a group, learned how to survive as a collective because of the necessity of surviving as a group, that a lot of these things have come back to bite us. So the biggest thing, the biggest problem in our community, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to dependency, is codependency, our inability to disconnect for our own well-being. And so when we're talking about the therapist, the therapist got to get a good handle on their trauma where we almost more so than other therapists need to get a fairly decent handle on our trauma, at least recognize it's there so it don't get in the way because it's easily triggered by our own folks. And I think that's crucial because, you know, self-awareness is really an idea that is passed around within this field of helping professionals that to really adequately help someone else, you need to start working on yourself. And trauma 
is no different. You need to have a firm understanding of your own trauma, especially if you're going to start talking about the trauma of other individuals and communities. We do not, as a people, do not want to deal with the trauma because we believe that if we deal with the trauma, that validates that there's something wrong with us and that that the system will use it against us. I had a young man who came in my group and he said, Mr. Sims, I'm tired of you talking about this trauma stuff. I said, okay, why are you tired? Well, my grandmother said, we're resilient people. I said, okay, so what does that mean to you though? He said, well, he said, we're like roaches. We ain't going nowhere. And in that room, he wasn't the only one who believed that. And so we had a conversation about roaches. You know, roaches don't care where they eat or sleep. And when you turn the light on, they scatter. And one little dude in the group who barely say anything, he said, Mr. Simmons, you know that's the community. So this thing about what we have done historically, and, and see the issue around the way we have to, had to deal with trauma is that we never had time to sit down and, and, and deal with our wounds because it keeps coming. When I talk about self-defeating behavior, self-defeating behavior usually is a result of dealing with a negative experience and finding a way to counteract that negative experience. And that behavior could be negative in itself, but it helps me feel comfortable, at least in the moment. If I continue to use that behavior over a long period of time without replacing it, then it becomes counterproductive. The most important thing, you've got to start with the painful truth, the painful, the good and the bad and the ugly truth, so you can go on and start your healing. Because the healing is an ongoing kind of thing. I know for me, there's this video I did many years ago called The Family Story because uh, we were having this conference about depression in the black community. And they asked me to speak. They, you know, this was way back when they didn't know if I knew what I was talking about. And they stuck me in a, you know, a little small room. I decided to talk about my family, three generations of my family, how, how my grandfather was mistreated and how that showed up and how he treated my mama. How my father's father, how he was treated, because my father's father was Mr from color purple. There was a whole lot of the misters that came up out of the South, just bitter and angry about everything and how that affected my father and how that affected how he dealt with me being his oldest child and how my mother and father got married at an early age and, and was taught to be embarrassed about being married, being pregnant at the same time. Because when I found out, my mother was embarrassed to let me know that and how how that showed up, not because they didn't love me, but how that showed up and how they treated me versus the other children. So when you don't deal with the trauma, you can't hide it. But we have been so conditioned and so embarrassed of our own existence that we will not deal with this trauma straight up. So I, I guess I'm wondering, when you're thinking of the trauma of men within these communities, what are some of the things that you are thinking of and addressing? The big piece that I found to be helpful is just getting black men in, in the community to l really take a real look at our history, starting, you know, we all know that we have a history before slavery, okay? We all know that our great history in, in Africa and even around the world. But the thing is, is we continually ignore the fact of, especially us with American slavery in our background, how that has affected our psyche 
affected the way we, we look at ourselves, the way we eat, the way we respond to each other, how that particular trauma has affected us. So what has been interesting is I've figured out a way to talk about historical trauma, utilizing some of the Native American practices, particularly Dr. Braveheart, in terms of her work with the Native American community around how do we, how do I break that down and take a look at how this trauma over the last 400 years have affected us and connecting the dots to what we presently see. And just in that piece alone, I've seen men, and particularly young men, respond in a way like, oh, Mr. Simmons, I'm not crazy. I'm just responding to my trauma. Right. And so just that piece alone, being able to increase their awareness about connecting the dots to to the behavior that they and themselves, in some cases, haven't learned that it is inappropriate. And I can get into that generational kind of stuff. Why wouldn't somebody find certain behaviors inappropriate? But just the this increasing people's awareness, I think we minimize sometimes how important of having somebody's awareness improved can be so beneficial in terms of being empowered to take the next steps now that I recognize the wrong steps and recognize that there is a reason for the wrong steps, not an excuse, but a reason for the wrong steps that, that will help me move forward and look for better ways to go forward. I love what you said in terms of linking the history to the behavior, especially in terms of Dr. Braveheart's work. And I know that she looks specifically at Native American communities, but can you point to any examples of some aha moments that some of the men that you work with have had? Some of the aha moments is is how we have, when, when we have conversations about trauma, all the conversations is about them. Most of the men I end up seeing is because they've been, a lot of them been court ordered for various reasons to see me. And they usually want to talk about what everybody else did to them. They very seldom are talked to about what happened to you. You know, I was like, what, what really, let's talk about what happened to you. Let's really define what happened to you. The aha moments would be a 25-year-old who, when he introduced himself, he called himself a hoe. And my response was, why do you say that? He says, man, you know, I've been having sex for a long time. I said, well, tell me about your first sexual experience. Well, he was like 12 years old and had sexual experience with an older woman, which in our community, other community, but especially our community, we really don't talk enough about, about older women having sex with younger and down to children in our community and how often that happens. That comes up a lot. We, because of some of the, the homophobia that runs through our community, we always, when we talk about sexual assault, especially for boys, we only talk, want to talk about sexual assault by men. But there's a large number of my men who've been sexually assaulted by women. And in this young man, 25, got five kids, I think four different mothers. And this was his response to me about him, you know, this is how he felt about himself. So we talked about his experience at 12. And he talked about it. And, and I mean, you could see him turn into that 12-year-old talking about the experience. But at the same time, because we are so conditioned as black men that our sexuality is tied so much to our 
to our masculinity that he was talking about it. You could see the sadness, but at the same time, trying to to show pride in the fact that this 27 or 8-year-old woman found him attractive enough to have sex with him. And, and he's trying to deal with both of them at the same time. And I said, so do you realize that you were sexually assaulted? Oh, no, man. No, man. Men don't get sexually assaulted by no woman. I was like, okay. I said, you got a sister? He said, yeah. I said, so if, if somebody came to you and told you that your 12-year-old sister was having sex with a 28-year-old man, would you find that as sexual assault? Yeah. And what would you do to him? Oh, man, you just don't want to know. I said, so you trying to tell me a 12-year-old boy is not a child either? And so you could see that all of a sudden, this and that moment that he he progressed emotionally considerably in that particular moment. He also started, he probably could have used a little bit more time, started really looking at how that was affecting the relationships he was having in the women in his life, where he was just a kept individual in these new relationships, and most of them were with older women. That experience has come up quite a bit in terms of the conversations we have with the men. One of the groups I do is around domestic violence, and the the big piece aha moment in terms of doing domestic violence work is asking the question to the group, and this has been true in terms of the community work, when the last time you've seen a healthy relationship? Because my thing is, is how do we talk about healthy relationships when folks will give you all the right answers, but tell you they haven't seen any? And then when they do describe the relationships, not realizing those relationships, especially with my younger men, and not just the younger men, younger men and women, their relationships look more like trafficking relationships than relationships, especially when they call themselves having more than one girlfriend. As we go on, I probably could think of some more. Oh, thank you. And I, I think that's extremely important to think about, especially the the point that you raised about it's really about what happened to you and for individuals to start thinking about that rather than this question that we often ask, which is what's wrong with you? You know, in all the literature, especially the trauma-informed literature, they, you know, have that quote, ask what happened to you. And, you know, and they all quote that. And you can ask that, but if you don't believe that the person that's in front of you deserves that question, or even when you ask that question, you still don't see that they deserve the compassion or the empathy that other people deserve, then it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I'm in Minnesota, small population of African-Americans with a lot of liberal individuals. But the thing is, is, how you see somebody is how you treat them. And again, both inside and outside the community does not treat young men and even our little boys like they deserve to be treated in a manner that calls for compassion. You know, the thing is, is we get, we, we were, we're really upset about how systems are mistreating our, our boys and our children for that matter. But in some cases, we're treating our boys the same way, without that type of regard, in terms of, you know, uh, treating little black boys like they're little men. And I see a lot of that, which brings up the issues around when we talk about adverse childhood experiences or the ACEs study, with in certain groups of folks, they want to 
talk about that, which is a study that's several years old, but it's all the rage, especially amongst mainstream. And, and basically it says that if you mistreat children at an early age, then they have a higher likelihood of not living their lives in a healthy manner. And the ironic part about that study is the original study was done with 73% uh, white individuals, about 70% all those individuals had some college. So we're talking about middle class individuals and the study came out and showed at least health wise how their lives came out if they answered certain questions that they had around growing up in a traumatic home and you know the trauma they were talking about really was things like did you grow up in a home with an abusive parent or or was your mama treated violently was there substance abuse in the home was there mental illness in the home was parents separated or divorced or incarceration was anybody in the household incarcerated and then we got the basic abuses emotional sexual and physical abuse and neglect in those areas, they came up with 10 questions, and if, and if a person answered four or more questions, we would, we would see the more questions, the, the more negative outcomes it would come. And so, we, as you notice, the one thing that ain't included in there is cultural trauma. And I think question one is, have your parents treated you harshly? In some tests, uh, African Americans didn't see that as a trauma. And, you know, there's some uh, researchers out of Drexler University in Philadelphia that's doing some uh, ACES studies in the urban community and seeing some different results. Like they they changed the question from parental separation divorce to do your parents still live together? Because when they were doing it with younger folks, that question didn't, didn't feel like it applied. And then when I use, I use uh, the ACES study, I use it with 10 other questions. Like I asked the question, did you grow up in a war zone? And the interesting thing about that, that was a eye opener because it came from another questionnaire that young folks would ask, can I answer yes to this? And my response to them, if you feel like you grew up in a war zone, yes. And probably about, in terms of folks doing it, probably over 50% of the folks, especially if they lived in the urban area, said they grew up in a war zone. One of the issues that is difficult when we're talking about doing this kind of work is getting African Americans to even take a look at what we call culture and how much of what we call culture is a trauma response. And how do we sort that out? I want to thank you for not only providing that context but also that understanding and being completely honest about not only how to talk about historical trauma, but also how we can address it and acknowledge it. And I really do think that all of our listeners have gained a lot from this. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, our presenter, Mr. Samuel Simmons, and our producer, Brianna Gonzalez. To learn more about our work and to check out some of our offerings, visit mcsilver.nyu.edu and ctacny.org. Until next time, this is Jason Jones, and we are changing the narrative together. Music